Here we go. Ephesians 3, 14 and following. So we're going to finish Ephesians 3 and do half of chapter 4. I say that in our recording. I'm recording the message. And let me turn to my Bible passage here. Okay. Ephesians 3, 14 and following. All right. So because of all this, I bend my knees toward the Father from whom every family in the heavens and on the earth receives its name. That he would grant you according to the wealth of his splendor to be fortified with power through his spirit in the inner person. So that the Messiah would reside in your hearts through faith, having been rooted and founded in love, that you might be strengthened to grasp with all the holy ones what is the width and length and height and depth, and to know the love of the Messiah, a love that far surpasses knowledge, so that you would be filled to all the fullness of God. Now, to the one powerful enough to perform excessively beyond everything we request or imagine, according to the same power at work in us, to him be the splendor in the church and in Messiah Jesus, to all generations in all the ages. Amen. So we are rereading this prayer, and I'm going to make some comments and teaching on it, because first of all... um, This is our prayer season. We start recognizing an emphasis on prayer when we begin March through April, May. Do I have the timing right? Boy, I hope I do, but I believe that's right. And so this is a call to prayer. This is a call to expand our base of prayer along the lines of this prayer in particular. The second reason is because our trek through Ephesians is preparatory For battle. And as Paul crosses the threshold from vision to exhortation, a threshold we're going to cross today, right? He's he's presenting the vision of God's eternal purpose, the kingdom embodied on earth, what it looks like. It looks like the one new man, Jews and Gentiles united in one community of love called the church, which on a ground level in a city and in the small groups of cities, the family units, is reflecting uh, the eternal purpose. These units reflect the eternal purpose by being actual spiritual loving families, right? That's the vision. Then Paul says, okay, therefore, here is what I'm exhorting you to do. Here's what you do. Now, when we get into the exhortation, that's the meat of the preparation stage. It's like, okay, do you really want to prepare for battle? Well, here's what you do. And that starts the beginning of chapter 4. So, right before he crosses the threshold, he drops to his knees again to intercede, to implore the Lord for the Spirit to move in the communities that he's targeting with this letter. Move by your Spirit, he prays, to strengthen their hearts. It's a crucial prayer. There's a lot of interaction with God in the first three chapters of Ephesians. All of Ephesians 1, as you know, is is uh, praise and then intercession. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, he starts to pray. He Then he, he interrupts himself and talks about his apostolic ministry and then moves that into prayer right here in this verse. So here's, or in verse 14 in this passage. Okay. So a few things about this call to prayer. Well, let me just start by saying, let us be intentional about praying for one another. We've already stated that at the beginning of our series, chapter one. Let's do it again. Okay. We're praying for that spirit of wisdom and revelation. Let's add to that. Let's pray for a move of the spirit to strengthen our hearts. Because our hearts are going to need strength for the battle ahead. That's exactly why Paul's praying here. Right on? Not trying to impress anybody or display a gift for my sake. 
This is truth. This is reality. This is a service to us. We're going to need our hearts strengthened for the battle ahead. But here's why. It's not because of the enemy. It's because of the Messiah. Paul's not praying for strength so that we'll be strong in battle. He exhorts us to that later. That's implied here. What's explicit here is the Messiah is going to dwell in our midst. And that's what we need the strength for. So the call to prayer, let's be intentional. Let's expand it. Let's, let's add this to our existing prayer meetings. Let's add prayer meetings. Whether they're formal things we announce or they're spontaneous prayer meetings, let's ded- dedicate ourselves to pray and let's add this language. It's really simple language. It's just got to come from hearts that are sincere and that are fervent. You know, when we're fervent and burdened about something, it ups the energy. When you fast behind it, it ups the energy also. Right? But the language is simple. God, strengthen the hearts of my brothers and sisters. Strengthen us. And here's the prayer. Through your spirit in the inner person. And the purpose is that the Messiah would dwell in our hearts through faith. So notice this. Paul's praying for a move of God. As a preliminary to another move of God. There is a spiritual insight here. Paul's praying. He doesn't use this language, but it's kind of like a revival. Lord, I pray for revival in these saints, in the inner person, that you'd strengthen their hearts. Because the next phase is the indwelling Messiah. Now, theologically, that's controversial language. Let's talk about that for a moment. Because Christ already dwells in our hearts through faith. He even uses the language. Let's see here. Am I, say, am, I, am I right in bringing this out right now? Yeah, I'll come back to that. Okay. So Christ already dwells in our hearts. We're Christians. Paul is speaking to Christian people. He is explicit and implicit throughout the entire letter. He addresses it to saints. The, the holy ones and the faithful ones. That's Old Testament language. For covenant people. He says, having heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Okay, these are saved people. He says in chapter two, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formally lived in the lusts of our flesh, formally lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Come on. He's speaking to people who are born again. They have the Holy Spirit. Okay, the, the, the epistle to the Colossians says that Christ, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right? The letter to the Colossians is the fraternal twin of Ephesians. They're like twin epistles, but fraternal twins. Okay, they're, they're, they're just like each other, but they're also pretty different in some ways. But they're related. They're brother and sister. They're fraternal twins. And Colossians tells us Christ is in us. And of course, lots of other texts tell us that. So where is Paul getting off saying, I want to move of the spirit to strengthen y'all's hearts that the Messiah might dwell in your hearts. Or actually, he says, inner person that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts. Because the nature of the new covenant, the nature of the fact that we have the spirit dwelling in us does not negate more. Or changing, broadening dimensions of having God living inside the temple of the human heart, the human body, and the human body, the church. There's still more. Now we can say, well, what it really is to try to stay theologically strict, especially in an atmosphere oftentimes uh, in, in our day where there's so much emphasis that God already dwells in you. you got to realize who you are, which I say amen to that. We should not be begging God for his spirit as if we don't have his spirit. 
We should be praying for further outpouring of his spirit as if we do have his spirit. Because the nature of having his spirit means we grow, we expand, we can be filled more, but also he can fill us more. It's the nature of sonship. You still ask for aspects of your inheritance. It's the nature of having the spirit that there is expansion and there's more, especially in light of Paul's agenda to see the church formed that becomes the house of the Messiah in a way that the Ephesians did not have yet, and neither do we. It's not just technical that he lives inside of us, it's true. But sometimes it's more of a technical reality when you compare it to what God's intention for his church to be. The embodiment of the Messiah on the earth. That takes strong heart to bind together to create that house for him. And he does not dwell in us fully and absolutely that way yet. And when I say we, I'm not just talking about king's people. I'm talking about we Christians of this city. We need apostolic people praying, oh God, strengthen their hearts. Because what I'm about to exhort them into in Ephesians 4, if they do that, it's going to be glorious because Christ will just come and you know, put the entire church on him like a giant body glove or something. But wow, it's going to require everything for them to yield to this eternal purpose for a big enough house, you know, the height, the depth, the breadth, the width to fit the Messiah. So, yeah, Christ dwells in all of us individually. And there's that collective indwelling that Russell exhorted us about today. But there's still more. There's still more to form the house in which he dwells. In Paul's language, in perfect fullness. Amen. We need strong hearts by the spirit so that we can become the house of the Messiah. Because the Messiah is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and God in the flesh. He is a controversial figure. He's an untamed lion. There's an entire section of Matthew's Gospel, an entire phase of discipleship in Matthew's program of discipleship. It's really Jesus's. But there's an entire section given to just explaining to the disciples, okay, that this life in the kingdom ain't what you expect it to be. And it's going to come about at times so unexpected that it's going to challenge your heart to even remain in the faith. Jesus said this more strongly than I just did. When... One of the men with the strongest spirit in history, John the Baptist, right? He was strong of spirit. He doubted that Jesus was the one after a while in prison. This is not what I expected. And this story in Matthew 11 kicks off that entire section where Jesus is going you know, to take his disciples through and then teach them there's a great mystery to this kingdom. It's, it's just, it's not your kingdom in the sense that you create it and what you expect. Your nice, whatever, lollipop view of God and your expectations, that's the way it's going to be. That's not the way it's going to be. God is holy. He exists independently of people and then gives himself to people. It's his kingdom, not ours. Right? So you think zig, I'm going to zag. It's just human nature. So it's John the Baptist is like, well, I spent a lot of time against the entire tide of popular religion and opinion preaching. There's a coming Messiah. Everybody should repent. Who's the Messiah? Well, he's the one who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. He's the great liberator. We know the promises of Isaiah, etc. He's the liberator. I spent all this time preaching his coming and I'm in prison. I'm incarcerated. I'm a captive. Are you he or is there another? Jesus says, you go back and tell John, right? Because messengers were sent. You go back and tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the poor receive the gospel. And blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Because I'm going to be me. I'm not going to be your image of me. To have me living with full attitude in your house is not going to be easy. 
That's why he says, blessed is the one that doesn't stumble over me. I'm going to take you guys places. It's going to be glorious, but it's not going to fit into human nature. I don't even, I, I can't even believe I'm saying these things. I'm, if they, they're very sobering. Let me say this. Right? You remember the story where Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. It's Mark's little window into the moment where Jesus was heading toward Jerusalem in Mark 10. And the disciples were following him at a distance. And it says they were amazed and afraid. Because this man, he has got a, a, an agenda like nothing else in all of history, all the universe. And he's taken us places that are just not conducive to comfort in the flesh. But it is the way to glory. He's just not always easy to follow. Lord have mercy on us. So Paul knows this. He's like, well, if you're going to fulfill the Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 wisdom that creates the church, y'all are going to need a strengthening of the Holy Spirit in the inner person to be able to embody this untamed lion, right? That's one of my favorite images. You've heard me talk about it before, the, the comment in the first Narnia series book, right? I think it's that one, where the children find out for the first time that Aslan is a lion, and they say, oh, is he quite safe? And the, I think it's the beavers, maybe it's other animals, they laugh. <laughs> no, he's not safe, but he's good. And so I'll reverse that, he's good, but he's not safe. He's not the Jesus of our tame religion. He's a lion, right? So we need strength of heart to contain this lion. Contain meaning, give him a place to dwell. And Paul knows that. And what he's about to exhort unto the body that's created by the ascended Lord through the five ministries and then the equipped saints and all that they are and all that they do. That's that's going to take all of our hearts. Our hearts have to be strong and they can't be divided. They can't be faint. Obviously, I was meditating on this earlier uh, and I felt like we should have some intercession time for that, particularly for healing when there's need. And, you know, we all face things and get discouraged and feel pain and we need to be put back to, back together sometimes. I'm talking about, you know, as a whole, we need our hearts strengthened. And that requires prayer for a move of God. I, I partly see uh, that's one of the purposes of revival. Days of revival, you know, many of us have been a part of a historic revival, but all of us have gone through seasons of refreshing. And sometimes we just ask the Lord to pour out more of that, kind of to do the work for us. But one of the purposes of, of these seasons of refreshing, one level of intensity or another, is to strengthen our hearts to be capable of God's eternal purpose, which is God's will. God's will is not just to send constant revivals. God's will is to have a people that have the fullness of Christ in their fullness, expressing him fully. That's the constant prayer of Ephesians. And doesn't it say that in this passage? In, the, in verse 19, that we would know the love of the Messiah, a love that far surpasses knowledge, that, or that you would. And then it says that you would be filled to all the fullness of God. That's language hearkening back to chapter 1. That the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church is intended to be the the perfect house of the Lord without limits. When we fragment, we limit the Lord. When we develop our own denomination, our own flavor, we limit him to something in our image rather than someone who's too big to be contained in one flavor. You need an entire city church to embody him. Man, can you imagine an entire city church being a Jesus movement that fully embodies him? That's, that, that's wonderfully impossible. We are so deeply fragmented. And even when we seek to get together, it's on the basis of our different franchises. Rather than melting them down to nothing and just being one church consisting of house churches that just pepper, or better yet, that create all these stars of light in a dark city. And together they are one lampstand. The churches in Revelation, the different lampstands, by the way, guys, those were city churches. wasn't... First this and first that. Those were an entire city church. We're responsible for our city and our part of it. 
When we pray for our churches, we should be praying for our city too because we're all in this together. Right on. So it's going to take a lot of strength of heart. And the ultimate goal is really love in all of its dimensions. When we love one another the way Paul's bringing us in Ephesians 4, then we become the house. So we are, but we're also becoming the house of the Lord. Let me see if I have anything else worth saying along these lines. This is all preparation for warfare. Got that? Okay. so again, why is Paul praying for this strength? So the Messiah would dwell in our hearts through faith. And then how do we do that? Well, that's where we get to chapter four. Paul begins to give the instructions. I'll tell you what. Let's move this because it's it's bothering me a little bit. Oh, you got wow. Oh. I couldn't do that. I'll do this. Now I'm going to do one of those running preacher runner things where you run around a lot. Not really. Okay, chapter four. So chapter four, verse one. Therefore, I exhort you. So there you have it. There's your threshold. Now let's call it a bridge. Mixed metaphor. There's a bridge right there. This is the beginning of apostolic exhortation. This is, this isn't just in Ephesians. This is typical of Paul, of the apostles, and, and generally the order and the mode by which they teach people. They, they cast the vision. And then they say, therefore, in light of that vision, here's what we're going to do. See the way that works? But it's always dependent upon the vision. Paul does not plant churches according to human traditions. He does it according to the eternal purpose. He sees the vision of the one new man. He sees the vision of what the dominion of Messiah looks like practically. So first, he offers the vision to those listening. And then he says, now with that vision in mind, I'm going to exhort you to a particular lifestyle. That's exactly where we're at right now. He does the same thing in Romans. Eleven full chapters of gospel. Same material, different angle, more expansive explication of it. But same stuff. Eleven chapters of gospel. He expands it. He explains it. Excuse me. He he, um, talks about, you know. 9 through 11 Romans, Jews and Gentiles, still a role, still a special promise for Israel. That's still intact. We need our elder brother back in the fold. That's all Romans 9 through 11, the crowning achievement of the gospel, the new community. Before that, it was the new creation. Before that, it was justification by faith. Now, justification by faith, new creation, new Adam, a new community, Jews and Gentiles together. Therefore, I exhort you in view of the mercies of God to give your lives as a living sacrifice. Be this new community. And you're going to need to lay yourself on the altar to do it. See the way that works? Ephesians, same exact. Three chapters of gospel vision that's supposed to soak us and cleanse us from traditions and past religions, be they pagan or Jewish in Paul's day, of the human elements of the Jewish religion, the traditional ones, and any other traditions we now have in our day that are even Christian. This, this apostolic vision is meant to cleanse us and soak us. And Paul can therefore say, now here's where we're going with this. Very, very powerful, right? Exhortation is like the perfect It's the perfect way to communicate. Paul exhorts people. right? A more mild version of that would be encouragement. The word can mean encourage, but here it means something more forceful. So you encourage people, you help them, you very gently kind of come in and give them a little encouragement that someone maybe is hurting or something. Or then you have way down on the other end of the spectrum, someone is just behaving awfully. They're spreading slander. They won't listen to a few Exhortation, so then you gotta do something sharper, like give them a warning. Or you have to even rebuke them. Rebuke is on the way on the strong side. Mild encouragement is way over here on the mild side. Right in the middle, you have exhortation. Exhortation has the force of command, but the empowerment of encouragement. 
It's perfect. It's, it's, it's cheering you on. It's like, come on, we can do this. But it still has the force of command. It's still imperative we do it, but it's coming in with grace. It's empowering. The, the Spirit himself is called the exhorter, right? He says, look, he always says, this is who you are, so therefore let's do this. That's exhortation. Exhortation takes a reality that God gives by grace and then says, this is who you are in Christ, Therefore, let's do this. Does that make sense? That's what's so perfect about exhortation. It's always based on grace, which means it's always rooted in a vision of who you've been created, recreated to be in Christ. It always establishes that first. Exhortation never tells us what to do without reminding us who we are. That's the power of exhortation. It never gives us commands out of the blue. It always reminds us who we are first. Then it commands us in a very cheerful way. Let's do this. Now, like I said, sometimes people get even in that environment, which is an environment of grace. They could be so rebellious that they need warnings and rebukes. And then you're not always just whining about who they are, who they are. It's like, dude, you know this enough. What are you doing? And in, in, in Hebrews, it was, they were so close to the edge. They were, what do you call that? Brinkmanship? They're like, you know, you're, you've been drifting away. You need the fear of God. You need to realize there's actually judgment on your horizon. That was to Christians. Over here, way over here, you have someone, they're not rebellious. They're just hurting, hurting, hurting. And they need very, very tender encouragement. Right in the middle is that reminder. Here's who you are. Come on, let's do this. And the Holy Spirit himself is the exhorter, the paraclete. Because the Greek yeah. verb is parakaleto. So he's, that's his normal mode, reminding us who we are and then saying, so come on, giving that good fatherly kick in the seat of the pants. Come on, buddy, you can do this. Like the story of my mother I've shared before, right? When she fell outside of her elevator in her condo on that, she stepped out of the elevator. There was that nicely polished marble. As soon as she stepped out, she fell, all of her weight went down. She, she broke her pelvic, pelvic bone. She was absolutely writhing in pain, couldn't move. One of the ladies, the one lady who saw her from a distance down the hall ran away. My mother's saying, help me, help me. The lady runs away. It was a weird building. They moved. But the Lord spoke to her and, and, and the Lord spoke to her through a memory of her mother. Who used to tell her, you're a strong girl. You can do this. You're a strong girl. You can do this. And so she found her way to whatever the next thing was and help did come. But it was a really sweet exhortation from the spirit. Reminding her who she was. You're a strong girl. And then saying, you can do this. That's what? Am I doing the accent? Thanks, Abby. <laughs> I'm close to it. I'm, I can't do it as well as she can. So that's the power of exhortation. It's therefore I exhort you. In light of this vision, here's what we're called to. And listen to the way he begins. To walk worthily of the calling with which you were called. This brings up yet another issue. I have to stop on. It's part of the message. We are stewards of this grace. It is possible for us to be dignified, spiritual children of God, meaning we're granted dignity. We're eternal people. We shine inherently because of our identity and still live like we're not that. It's possible to walk in a manner that's not worthy of the Lord. What I mean is, it's possible for Christians to walk in a manner that's not worthy of the Lord. To behave in ways that are irresponsible or ugly or selfish. Because the community that Paul's exhorting toward, that is a proper dwelling place for the Messiah, has to be predicated upon the opposite of selfishness, which is love. So that's why he's praying for the strength of heart, because we have to cut against, of course, the attacks of the enemy, but our own selfishness. 
So he prays for that. Then he says, you know, any other way of walking is not worthy of the Lord. He's ultimately talking about walking in radical love. Yeah, so that's his first exhortation. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. With all humility and meekness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to guard the union of the spirit in the bond of peace. Why does he say guard? Well, because we already have the unity. It's granted. But in practice, we don't always have it. But we still have to guard it because whatever we do have is going to be attacked. See, this is the beginning of preparation for warfare. If we are divided, the enemy's already in. So we have to guard what we have. Being diligent to guard the union of the spirit and the bond of peace. And by the way, if you're interested, that word for bond has to do with like being tied together. Same root word as Paul being a prisoner. We're kind of imprisoned to one another. Not really, but it is the same word because we're bound. Organic covenant. And then in verse four, Paul makes this series of declarations. One body and one spirit. So we're guarding the union of the spirit in the bond of peace because of this series. There's only one body. There's only one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, the one over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. So I'll come back to that in a moment. Just want to say briefly that Paul's saying we should guard against the attack of the enemy our unity. It's very important that we protect and cultivate our relationships because it's the stuff that creates the foundation upon which we stand to move forward in battle. The reason for this is theological. It's good Jewish monotheism. God is one. Everything is about unity. God in his very nature is unity. There aren't other gods. There's only one. There aren't other lords. There's only one. There's only one faith. There's only one baptism. Our fragmentation implies, even though we don't want to admit it, our fragmentation implies there's different baptisms and there's different faiths, even within the Christian faith. We don't want to send that message. Now, we can say we're all one, and we do that. We're, there might be different brands, but we're all one. Yeah, we say that, but if our lives don't correspond to it, we're sending the opposite vibe, and the vibes get out. The vibes say we're fragmented. There's different faiths and different baptisms. We don't want to send that message. We want to be diligent. We want to, we want to see the preciousness of the kind of unity that Paul's talking about right here. And guard it. And that means offense, we cultivate it. That means defense, we guard it. So there's your reasons. Now, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. So Paul's now heading toward the fact that each of us has a unique gift. And the contribution of that gift is going to serve the whole. Now, as he gets into that... He pauses for another window into the bigger vision. He's not really pausing, but he's kind of pausing the exhortation. And he gets back into the visionary side, the theology, when he talks about the ascended Christ. Because we need this last bit of the bigger vision of King Jesus to understand how we are to operate within our giftedness in the community of love. So we each have grace, and that's why it says in verse 8, When he ascended to the height, he imprisoned prisoners. He gave gifts to people. So now Paul is boldly saying, look, this giftedness comes from the ascension of the Lord. This, This is where Paul gets in kind of to the nerve center. Jesus ascended as king. We say it a lot. He's king and Lord. 
But that implies something of the personality of the church. Which is why, without realizing it, we avoid talking directly about the ascension. You hear very little about it. We hear about the death, we hear about the resurrection, but we hear little about the ascension. And there's a reason for that. Number one, because the ascension implies he's coming back in judgment. And we don't like correlating a lot of that. That we live... It was in your passage today, wasn't it? I think that the Lord is coming maybe at the end. I don't know if you read that part. The Lord's coming to judge the earth. The ascension implies that. It's when they saw him go up, Acts 111, the angel says, what are you guys looking up for? He's coming back the same way he went up. It was a physical departure. It's a physical coming back. The ascension implies that Jesus is Lord of the whole earth. And no matter what we tell ourselves as humans, he's coming back to judge us based on his standards, not ours. The second reason why we avoid the ascension is a gut level allergy to the fact that the ascension is what implies authentic church. Now, how do I correlate that? I don't. Paul does. It's right here. You have ascension and then you have church. You have no ascension. You have no church. The ascension, the enthronement of King Jesus implies a whole new kind of community for which we're responsible. And if we don't want that community, if we want something else, some other brand of Christianity, we're saying Jesus isn't really quite king. Because I refuse to be organized in that kind of community, which implies his royalty. I want other government officials defining me and my family. And that's precisely what's happening in this passage. Because at the ascension, he overcame the other government officials. But in our traditional modes, we're more comfortable living under the government of those defeated officials. So we organize ourselves as church in different ways, which compromises the testimony of his royalty. So we can say Jesus Christ is Lord a lot, but if we live differently, we're contradicting ourselves. There is a reason why. When Miriam saw Jesus outside of the tomb, having been raised from the dead, she ran to him and clung to him. The King James says, touch me not. The grammar there means she is already holding on and he says, stop clinging to me. There's a reason why he says to a a devout and sincere worshiper, stop clinging to me. And the reason is, he says to her right then, I've not yet ascended to my father. So he was jealous over his ascension because it was part of the plan. And he's not finished yet just being raised from the dead. Because resurrection releases new life to all who believe, but ascension releases church community to all who believe. And that's the eternal purpose, to constitute this community. And then, of course, when Jesus comes back, it has this expanse of glorious dominion over the earth with Jesus. Right? So he's jealous for his ascension. We should gather into our own hearts a jealousy for the ascension of the Lord. This is not just a a doctrine. The ascension of Jesus implies a certain way of life as a family. What often happens is we're unwilling to enter into the New Testament vision of church. But we will cry out to the Lord for revival. It's like, Lord, revival. We need revival. It's like Jesus is saying, look, revival is outside of the tomb. I'm alive from the dead. I can give you revival. But there's also ascension life. Which is entering into this kind of community. I wonder if during some of our prayer meetings for revival, we're willing to hear a word from the Lord that says, stop clinging to me. You haven't yet climbed the mountain of ascension. You want me to do something down on your level for you, according to your model. I'm saying if you'll enter into ascension, you'll become a people who are a walking, living, breathing revival. Which is God's target. That's his goal. So back to the prayer. Pray for strength of heart so that Christ may dwell. We, it's like we get so caught up in that prayer for this, this one move of the Spirit because we're unwilling to move forward. And I just wonder if the, Lord's, if the Lord's people are willing to hear him say, like, stop this clinging. 
This prayer mode, it's worthy up to a point to pray the way you're praying, but you're using it as a cop-out from a life that would give me a dwelling. It's a divorce mentality to just want God to visit the houses we built. Visitation rights. Lord, visit, visit again, visit again. It's like, how about I live in your house? We've heard the phrase, we want to go from visitation to habitation. Used to be a popular saying. I don't know if it's popular anymore. We want to move from visitation to habitation. Yeah, what are you going to do about that? What what, what are you going to do about habitation? Uh, What are you going to do? Awesome meetings, better preachers. No, how about you build the house that he lives in? If you want him to inhabit, build his house. That's the way you move from visitation to habitation. God will visit the houses we build. He'll live in the house that he builds. So if we yield to his wisdom and build his house, he's the one through us building his house. He'll live in it, which is exactly what Paul was praying for in Ephesians 3. I'm praying you're strong enough in the inner person to build this house so that the Messiah will come and dwell in it by faith. See how that all works? All those forebears of ours in Jewish faith starting to build the house of the Lord after exile. And what happens? The Samaritans and others come by and are like, hey, we want to build with you. And they're like, you got no part in this covenant. They're like, well, then we're going to stop you. And they were persecuted and discouraged and they stopped building the house of the Lord. They went about their business. And God raised up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to say, build this house. The reason why I'm not blessing you, the reason why I'm withholding rain is because you're not building it. That was Haggai's message. We talked about that. Time to build. That was last year. That is so last year, Dad. (laughs) And Zechariah's vision was apocalyptic. He's like, this this is where the anointing is. You tell that mountain to go and it will go. It will get out of the way and you will be able to build this house. And they were encouraged. Then they built a modest house. There's going to be discouragement. From the enemy not to build God's house God's way. That's why we need that strength of heart. I wouldn't doubt for a second if Paul was thinking of those very stories when he was talking about his prayer in Ephesians 3. Well, back to the ascension. The ascension implies the building of this house. Because the ascension is where Jesus gifts his people. He quotes Psalm 68 verse 16. The beginning of that psalm is when uh, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. There's already ascension language there, right? How many of you guys know know that song, the old chorus? Let God arise. I'm not going to sing anymore. But you know it. So that's that's an ascension image, right? Let God arise. When God rises, his enemies are scattered. So we have that image here. But then 18 verses later... It talks of Yahweh when he ascended to the height. That's the top of the mountain. Right? The idea in the Old Testament was that the top of mountains, especially certain mountains, they, they like touch heaven. You could have access to heaven in those. Even the Tower of Babel was, was meant to be like a man-made mountain so that they could go to the height and sit on the council of the heavens that rules the earth. Right? So, but Yahweh's mountain especially is Mount Zion. So it was natural Mount Zion. That's why the temple was on there. But there was also the the, kind of like the spiritual mystical parallel. And you read about it in Hebrews 12, that there is this mountain in the heights in the spirit realm that is where Yahweh's throne is. But here it says when he ascended to the height, because he had come down, right? The image used in Psalm 68 is that Yahweh came down from his mountain to fight for his people. That's the image. And that's typically what kings would do in those days. They would fight with their people. They wouldn't just send other people to fight. And in this case, Yahweh came in. He fought with them. He fought for them. He defeated his enemies. And as was typical, it is still today. It certainly was typical among these warring kings and armies in the ancient Near East. They would plunder their enemies. Right? The ones that weren't killed and were valuable were taken as servants for the victorious kingdom. And then they would also take 
material goods, oftentimes plundering the temple of the foreign god to use that gold and silver and other brass things. All these things were expensive and were valuable. They would take them into their god or give them to their to their courts and to their people so that, so that the victorious people, the victorious nation, could have all these servants and could have more wealth and, and could become more powerful, taking advantage of what their enemies had. Well, Yahweh would come down and plunder his enemies. And he would take what was good, so to speak, in, the, in this image, and distribute it to his people for their advantage. Paul is saying that image is applied to Jesus because Yahweh would come down and fight, plunder his enemy. As he would go back up to the mountain, he would distribute the goods to his people. He would bless his people and then go up and sit on his throne. So Paul says that happened in the ascension. Jesus came in. He defeated and plundered his enemies. He came down, defeated and plundered his enemies, and then took the wealth of the enemy and distributed the wealth to his people as he ascended to his throne. And then he says, well, what are these gifts that he took from the enemy and gave to his people? Were they the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? We'll read a little bit more here. So verse 8, that's why it says when he ascended to the height, he imprisoned prisoners, he gave gifts to people. Now, this ascended, or excuse me, he ascended, what does it mean? except that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth. So he came down. The one who descended is himself also the one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he would fill all things. That means his dominion would reign supreme. There'd be no element of creation outside of his dominion. So he came down. He had to come down first, which is a mark of his humility. And of course, the image of coming down off the mountain to fight. Going back up the mountain, that's when he distributed his gifts. So verse 11 describes the gifts. He himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the completing of the saints, for the work of serving, for the building up of the Messiah's body until we all attain to the union of the faith. Now I'll pause there. So that's the chain reaction. First ascension. The ascension distributes the five ministries. Okay, I got to back up another second. The enemy defeated by Jesus when he came down was the devil and his minions, right? It was these evil powers because they were the governors of the earth. They ruled. When God marks out his people, they can't be ruled by these evil spirits. So he's going to defeat his enemy and he's going to rule them himself. How does he rule them? but by distributing grace through the five ministries. They're the ones plundered from the enemy because when the enemy has people bound, he binds them in sin, but he also binds their ability to help God's people. So the release from sin comes at the cross and resurrection, the release to be productive in God's church, to to give fivefold grace, that comes from the ascension Because the ascension is when Jesus goes back to the heights and takes dominion over these powers, these evil powers in the air. Did you guys hear that part? On the ground, Jesus is alive from the dead, but he's like, look, I'm king now. I got to climb that mountain and get over those evil spirits that I just defeated. I have to take a higher throne. And that's the place for which he wants to rule us. Well, how do we get underneath his kingship? We allow the five ministries to create what the church is supposed to be. And then we become equipped to build the church. If we're not in that stream, we're not being governed fully by the king. We're being governed by these other powers as a church. Now, as people, we might be alive, born again and happily walking in victory personally. But Christ isn't embodied in a city through one or two people or scattered disciples. He's embodied through the church. So in order for the church to become the church, we have to take advantage of what the Lord plundered and put ourselves at the, how do I say this, at, at the grace of the five ministries that build the church his way. Now, what we've done is we've found all kinds of other mechanisms to plant and define church. We've done that. 
we found all, all kinds of philosophies, wisdom, and other mechanisms. But this passage is saying, if you want to be connected with the king in the height, then you need to be equipped by these five ministries. That's five, not ten. Five for each side. And then we become completed, responsible, and capable of building the body. The leaders equip, we build. The leaders equip, we build. Right? And that's how to be governed by King Jesus. To live in that wisdom. The wisdom of Ephesians. Because if we're called to address and bring down a religious spirit, we can't afford to be fragmented or living a life that's like less than the Ephesians 4 ideal of just kind of doing things our way and hoping for the best. If we're going to confront that thing, our very solidarity, our love, our equipment from the five ministries that's making one another built up, that's the very thing that makes us stand strong. In fact, it's probably 98% of the battle right there. When David confronts Goliath, if you read the narrative carefully, if you're watching the story closely, about that much space is given to the actual battle. Goliath came forward. David ran toward him through the rock, went into his forehead. He fell down. David cuts his head off. It took a very short time. The rest of the narrative was all the interaction of David preparing the right way. Saul's armor, not Saul's armor, all the dialogue with Saul. Dealing with all the other powers that compromised his ability to confront Goliath. When he finally got to the point where he was equipped God's way, the battle went like that. Same for us. Now, we have to finish. I'm going to have to pick up here the next time and finish Ephesians 4, half number 1, before we even get into half number 2. Thank you, Faith. Thank you. Thank you, you four people, for applauding. Um, so, yeah. Five smooth stones. Yes, and he only needed one. Uh, okay. No. You ready to go? Let's all stand. Gina's standing. Let's all stand with her. Were you coming up here? Oh, okay. I thought you were just leaving. No, I just wanted to say that... Um, First time Bob ever spoke this message, it was like I I felt the like I was afraid <laughs> because of the weight of the and the just what was being said. It was like it was so powerful and so strong. I felt like it was this I don't know how to explain it, but anyway, and and it caused a lot of trouble for us because the enemy was not happy with this message and he's still not happy with it because it's like it's getting out you know it's getting out and he can't do anything about it and um the people that heard that message that day are still the one one guy is still um really contending for for the work in his area kind of connected to us loosely you're going Mm -hmm. there at the end of this month and Mm -hmm. i just thought it was interesting that's true so be praying for Bob, as he goes there to, to speak at this place in Arkansas. But I just wanted to, like, say something about it because I feel so moved and so gripped by um, these words every time they're spoken because I know the, the weight that they carry and how much the enemy resists them. So just embrace what is being spoken and, and you know, we'll have to digest this and, and really pray through it in the, in the coming days. But I just wanted to say that. 